This morning's reading is from God's Word is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. You may follow the text on page 880 in the Red Pew Bibles or on the overhead behind me. Jesus had risen and already appeared to Mary Magdalene outside the empty tomb. The narrative now continues with Jesus appearing to the disciples. Verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked, for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive, then they are not forgiven. Now Thomas also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See? My hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs 
in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Over the next two weeks, we're going to be exploring some of the responses to the resurrection. This morning, I'll be bringing you Thomas's response to the resurrection. And next week, Pastor David will be leading us through Peter's response to the resurrection. But first, it's come to my attention that if you are not a teenager or the parent of a teenager, you may have no idea who I am. So, hello, I'm Lachlan, the youth pastor here at Nawi Baptist Church. Now, I'm actually here every single 9am service without fail, except I'm normally downstairs leading our teenagers through a Bible study. Now, once that Bible study is finished, rather than coming upstairs and meeting you all, we start a game of pool that often takes us over an hour to finish, which tells you that neither myself nor the youth are any good at pool. But this morning, I'm not downstairs. Instead, I'm up here at the pulpit, ready to lead us through God's Word, And all it took was our senior pastor being in New Zealand. So, as we begin, join me in prayer for what we're about to do this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you that this is your word. And right now, we ask that by reading this word, we'll come to know you, love you, and serve you better. Amen. Now, when I was in high school, I had a friend called Reese, And every single morning, without fail, Reese would come to us and present something that happened on this day throughout history. For example, on April 16th, in 1972, the Apollo 16 was launched. That's pretty cool for all my space nerd friends out there. Or, on this day, April 16th, in 1953, Peter Garrett, the lead singer of Midnight Oil, was born. It's another pretty cool fun. Or, on this day, April 16th, in AD 30, Jesus appeared to Thomas. You see, the text we read this morning, we are told that this interaction between Jesus and Thomas happened on the Sunday after Easter. In other words, today. But there's also a pretty decent chance that this interaction also happened on April 16th. You see, the biblical authors weren't super concerned to tell us the exact date of the resurrection But we do know that Jesus died on Passover, and we know that that Passover was on a Friday night. And so by looking at the lifespan of Jesus, we see kind of the two dates that Jesus could have been crucified. And those two dates are April 7, AD 30, or April 3, AD 33. Now, if you take a few days, go ahead a few days from there, you'll see that today's story happens either on April 16, AD 30, or April 11, AD 33. So in other words, there's a 50-50 chance that this story today happened on April 16th. Now, is this at all important to this sermon? No. Is this important to the story? No. I just thought it was really interesting, so I've included it. What is far, far more important for us this morning is figuring out who Thomas was. Now, I started by doing just a quick Google of the name Thomas through the Bible, and this is what I found. 
You see, no mentions of Thomas in the Old Testament. I guess that's pretty expected. And then a little peek in the Gospels, and then no mention to Thomas again. And so we don't have a lot of information about Thomas. Now, his, his mentions in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts are all just on lists of the 12 disciples. So there is the first thing that we know about Thomas, that he was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Um, just as a side note, if this is the first sermon of mine you're hearing, a graphical representation of the Bible is not unusual. Now, when we go to John, we see that Thomas has several more mentions. Once it appears on the screen, there we are. So, this is the times that Thomas is mentioned in the Gospel of John. Now, he gets several mentions in today's story, John 20, but let's go back and look just for a second at his other appearances in this Gospel. Firstly, we go to John 11. And so, what we see in John 11 is a really devoted Thomas. In John 11, Jesus proposes returning to Judea, but all his disciples warn him that the Jews of that area want him dead. Now, when they are unable to persuade Jesus to not go back to Judea, here Thomas shows his devotion and says, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, this is the same story where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, a resurrection, and then declares that he, Jesus, is the resurrection and the life. We also find in this passage, Thomas has a nickname, the twin. So it's likely that Thomas was a twin, otherwise it's just a really bad nickname. We then go to John 14. Now John 14 is the Last Supper, and Jesus has been teaching that he must suffer and die and raise again, and then go away to prepare a place for his disciples in his father's house. Now, Thomas voices what all of the disciples are thinking, and as Jesus, we have no idea what you are speaking about. In response to this, Jesus declares that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Notice that both times that we see Thomas in John's Gospel before our story this morning, Jesus explicitly says that he has authority and power over life itself. That may be important, so keep it in mind. Then we arrive in John 20, our passage for this morning. Now, John 20 starts on Easter Sunday. Peter and John have seen the empty tomb, and Mary has seen the risen Lord Jesus. We actually read that part of the story last Sunday and celebrated that Jesus was alive. But here, in the passage we read this morning, we see a very different response from his disciples. Instead of being in celebration like we were a week ago, they are meeting behind locked doors out of fear. They probably also noticed their dwindling numbers. They were known as the 12 disciples, except because of the betrayal of Judas, they were already down to 11. And then, because Thomas was also missing, they were now down to 10. Into this locked room appears Jesus. Now, we are not told whether Jesus jumped up from his hiding place behind the couch whether he phased through a wall, whether he just appeared amongst them, or whether he simply knocked on the locked door. But the important point is that suddenly Jesus was there and very much alive. Jesus wishes them peace, shalom, twice, turning their fear into joy. Jesus then declares that they are no longer just disciples, but that they are apostles, they are sent ones. And then he bestows upon them the Holy Spirit. Now, this is only a partial empowerment, awaiting the full bestowing on the day of Pentecost. 
And then Jesus was gone, and Thomas was left to hear about this interaction secondhand. Now, in verse 25, we read that the disciples told Thomas about this incredible night. Now, the verb ilogon, which we translate told, is actually in the imperfect tense. What that means is that this is a continual activity. The disciples kept telling Thomas, probably over the course of a whole week, about this strange and unlikely interaction with Jesus on Easter Sunday evening. Now, I don't know about you, but if my friends, for a whole week straight, kept telling me a very unlikely story, I too may have ended up like Thomas and declared that people don't just rise from the dead. And to change my mind, I would need to see some pretty serious evidence. Now, Thomas actually uses a double negative here. Now, I know in English, a double negative cancels each other out, but in ancient Greek, a double negative doubles down. So we could translate Thomas's words here as, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will never, ever believe. Now, I think many of us may find Thomas a really relatable character. We find him really reasonable of wanting proof for the resurrection. But let's remind ourselves of what we know about Thomas. Thomas was at the tomb of Lazarus when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. Thomas was with Jesus in the upper room when Jesus taught that he must suffer, die, and raise again. And at both of these times, Jesus explicitly declared that he had authority to grant and control life itself. So within the span of three years traveling with Jesus, Thomas had been taught about resurrection, he had seen a resurrection, and now he had 10 of his best friends telling him that they had seen the risen Jesus. If there is any man in history who should have believed this claim, it was Thomas. Now, everything I've just explained from John 20 could probably have its own sermon, but I want us to jump forward to the following Sunday, to April 16th, and focus on just the interaction Thomas and Jesus have. This is the interaction, and it only has four lines of dialogue. Firstly, Jesus says, peace be with you, followed by put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side, stop doubting and believe. To which Thomas replies, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So these are the four bits of dialogue we get in this conversation. So, point one, Jesus brings peace when he says, peace be with you. So again, the disciples are meeting on a Sunday. And again, the doors are locked. And again, suddenly appears amongst them. Jesus opens with the line, peace be with you. And in this single blazing moment, I suspect Thomas realized that everything he had been told by his disciples was true. Jesus had even led with the exact same line that Thomas had heard about all week. Now, to wish peace or likely shalom upon someone was a really normal greeting back in the first century. But here on the lips of Jesus, it actually takes on a different meaning. You see, Jesus, in John 14, 27, promised to leave his peace with his disciples. And unlike worldly peace, 
this peace will turn all fear and trouble into joy. In John 16, 33, Jesus promised that the peace he brings will allow his disciples to overcome the troubles of the world. In these statements, peace is seen as a virtue that only Jesus can bring, because only Jesus can allow us to experience true peace, true tranquility, true serenity that will last. But peace is even more than this. The Apostle Paul takes the concept of peace and joyously declares in Romans 5.1 that because of Jesus, we have peace with God. As Christians, this is exactly what we believe, that because of the Easter story, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can have peace with God, despite the evil and wicked things that we do. Peace here symbolizes a right relationship with God. And the fact that we can be offered this peace is almost incomprehensible, which Paul points out in Philippians 4.7. But this peace will guard our hearts and minds nonetheless. And so in one line of dialogue, we learn that Jesus brings the true virtue of peace while also bringing us peace with God. Do you know peace like that? If you do, it is because you know the gospel of our risen Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Point two, Jesus overcomes doubt when he tells Thomas to stop doubting and believe. Now, doubt is a normal part of the Christian experience. In Mark 9, after witnessing his son released from an evil spirit, the boy's father falls to Jesus' feet and declares, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. In the very final chapter of Matthew, as Jesus is giving the Great Commission, the text literally says they worshipped him, but some doubted. Thomas doubted. And you know what? That's actually okay. Because how does Jesus respond to this doubt? By literally appearing before Thomas and showing him the proofs of his death and resurrection. Jesus is full of such grace and mercy that he offers Thomas the very thing that he asks for. I find this overwhelmingly encouraging because I can really relate to Thomas. When I finished high school, despite having been raised in a Christian family, I was pretty sure that God existed, but I had some doubts. What I experienced in that season was mercy upon mercy. As suddenly I found myself surrounded by great Christian mentors and friends, I found my, myself discovering God and his truths in his word, and by the end of that season, I was fully convinced that God was real. You see, doubt does impact us all. From the smallest thing, like doubting the latest research that says bacon is bad for you, lies, or up to the really big things like, did Jesus rise from the dead? In 2017, a research firm in America conducted research into the Christian experience of doubt. And they found that most Christians at some point had experienced doubt. And for those of you who are good at maths, you'll realize that those numbers do not equal 100%, and I do not know why. But what should we do when we experience doubt? If it is a common experience, what should we do? Well, this same research firm found that these are the things people stopped doing when they doubted. 45% stopped going to church. 29% stopped reading the Bible. 29% stopped praying and 25% stopped talking to their friends and family about faith. 
But what does John 20 encourage us to do when we doubt? Thomas, who disbelieved his friend's testimonies, met with them the following week in one of the first ever church gatherings. Two, John writes this very story of his gospel, which we have in our Bibles, so that we may believe. Three, Thomas makes a demand of God. If that isn't a type of prayer, I don't know what is. And fourth, Thomas is clearly having conversations with his friends about faith. So if you are struggling with doubt here this morning, I want to encourage you to do those four things. Attend church. Surround yourself with those people who know and love Jesus. Two, read your Bible. God literally gave it to us for moments such as these. Three, pray to God that he... Four, continue to talk to people about your faith and doubt. Now, just before we move on from this topic of doubt, I wanted to share a few reflections from Barnabas Piper's book, Help My Unbelief, Why Doubt is Not the Enemy of Faith. He points out that in the Bible, we are compelled to see two different types of doubt, good and bad doubt, or unbelieving and believing doubt. So unbelieving doubt is the doubt of a heart that is not transformed by God's grace. It doesn't seek guidance from God, only a way to escape God's claims. Piper writes, When unbelieving doubt poses a question, it is not interested in the answer for any reason other than to disprove it. Unbelieving doubt is on the attack. The asker is not asked to learn. They are asking in order to devastate. On the other hand, believing doubt, in the words of Piper, is, instead of letting unbelief in, ventures out in faith, and seeks to confront it. Just as unbelieving doubt is against belief, this sort of doubt is the driving force behind belief. It is doubt that seeks truth and stems from the belief that God is the source of all truth. As the source of all truth, God can stand up to all of our doubts. And unbelieving, and sorry, believing doubt acts as a bit of a vaccine, helping us to fight the doubt head on and leaving us stronger than ever before. When you or your children or your loved ones have doubt, invite them to lean into their doubt and then direct it towards Jesus. Our God who defeated death can show people an ability to see him clearly in moments of struggle. Acknowledge to them that doubt can be tiring and wearisome. And then, maybe with a slight smile on your face, Assure them that Jesus' invitation is not to come to him with all of the answers, but to come to him when you are weary and tired. I pray that like Thomas, my doubt, your doubt, their doubt, help us know and love Jesus better than ever before. And so, point three, Jesus is God. Shown in how Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God. Now, Thomas may have been slow to believe, but he was not slow to grasp the significance of Christ's resurrection. This realization of the goodhood of Jesus is so very important. And as soon as Thomas realizes this, he falls on his face in worship of Jesus. It is also important to see that Jesus does not deny Thomas's claim, but accepts it. Almost every religion in the world has realized that there is something special about Jesus. 
Islam sees him as a prophet. Judaism sees him as a great reformer who Christians have drastically misunderstood. Hinduism has recently incorporated him into their pantheon of gods. And Buddhism sees him as a great teacher who came along to bring people further on the journey to enlightenment. But Christianity sees Jesus as God. The claim by Thomas that Jesus is God is the high point of this entire gospel. You see, the climax to the gospel of John is the resurrection story. And the climax to the resurrection story is Thomas's claim that Jesus is Lord and God. You see, Thomas realized that Jesus is greater than we naturally think. Jesus is more than a good teacher, more than a good mentor, more than a good friend. Instead, Thomas realized that Jesus was God. And this is where the whole gospel has been leading. Finally, we see evidence for the very first line of the gospel of John, which says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, this realization by Thomas radically changed his entire life. You see, I feel sorry for Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. And yet, from this moment onwards, he went out and preached the gospel faithfully and, as far as we know, without much doubt. In fact, it is believed that Thomas went as far as India to preach about Jesus and that he died for his faith there. Encountering Jesus, who is both Lord and God, will radically redirect your life. If you haven't changed from such an interaction, then it's likely you haven't necessarily interacted with the real Jesus. At youth one night, Nick used this illustration. If I told you that I was late to church today because I was hit by a semi-trailer going 100 kilometers per hour, none of you would believe me because having an interaction with something that powerful would leave some type of mark on me. It's the same with Jesus. If you have had an interaction with the Lord and the God of the universe, you will be changed by this interaction. It didn't just change his long-term goals, though. Thomas immediately had a response to this, which was worship. Excitingly, we get to worship Jesus every moment of our lives. And on a Sunday, our church provides a specific and intentional way to do that through song. How do you use this time? Daydream, waiting for it to be over? Do you sing along with no emotional or intellectual engagement with the words? Or do you take the time to emotionally and intellectually connect with our God, with our Lord, the creator of the universe? Point four, Jesus brings blessing. And we know this because he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. While we praise Thomas for his realization the weakness of Thomas's confession was that he needed sight in order to have it. So Jesus needed to make a correction here. And he does that by mentioning the greater blessedness for those who believe without sight, which applies to all Christians ever since Thomas. You see, Jesus was thinking of all future generations when he said this. He was thinking about you and he was thinking about me and giving us a special blessing because we believe in him. Even though we didn't see him personally working his miraculous signs, even though because we did not personally see him raised from the dead, we still believe. 
Now, this is actually the final beatitude ever uttered by Jesus. And the word blessed here is more than just a temporary or circumstantial feeling of happiness. Instead, it is a state of well-being with God. You see, so secure in God are those who believe who have not seen. But does this advocate blind faith? My answer is no, because the next two verses in John's Gospel say that the entire reason that this is written down is to provide evidence for our faith. Let me reread verses 30 to 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these ones are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This definitively proves that God does not advocate blind faith. Instead, the gospel is written so that we may believe, based on the word of credible witnesses like Thomas and like John. And I think that is exactly why we have this story in our scriptures, because John is writing to help us believe that Jesus is Lord and God. And who better to convince us of that fact than the biggest skeptic out there? Now, I don't currently believe in aliens, right? But my cousin is the biggest skeptic I know when it comes to aliens. If something could convince him that aliens were real, I know I would start to seriously entertain that possibility. I think it's the same here with Thomas. Thomas demanded evidence. He demanded evidence of sight. He demanded evidence of touch. If he could be convinced, that should seriously make us consider that there is truth and validity to these claims. We depend upon secure evidence for our faith. The scriptures, the witness of the church through the ages, our own experiences, but we do not depend on actually seeing the risen Jesus in the flesh. But we are not deprived because of this. Instead, we are the recipients of a special blessing from the Lord Jesus. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But how exactly are we blessed? I hear some of you ask. Here is one small element of how we are blessed in the words of Pastor Glenn Shrivener. The blessed way to encounter the risen Jesus is not by having a one-off apparition, like the one Thomas received. The blessed way to encounter Jesus is through the Scriptures. Why? Well, just imagine that Jesus appeared to you tonight at the end of your bed. You saw his wounds. You heard him say, peace. What a spiritual high you would have. For a few days... Weeks, perhaps. But fairly soon, you'd start to wonder whether you'd dreamt the whole thing. Within a month, you'd need to see him again, and again, and again. But with the Bible, it is here in black and white for all time. At three in the morning, when I have doubts, when loved ones dies, when I lose my job, I can always see Jesus by opening my Bible and seeing him there. That's how doubting Thomases begin to believe, and that is how doubting Thomases go on believing. Now, if that is true, how should we read our Bibles? The answer is expectantly. We should seek to encounter the risen Jesus as we listen to God's Word. May it be that every time that we read the Scriptures, we get to have an appearance of Jesus. We see his wounds. We see him say, peace. And hopefully we respond in worship, crying out, my Lord and my God.
And so we reach the end of this short conversation that happened exactly 1,993 years ago. But it is a conversation that remains so relevant for us today. Now, I know there was four points, which is drastically different from a three-point sermon, so let's just recap those four points for us. Jesus offers peace, both the virtue and peace with God through his death and resurrection. Have you accepted that peace here this morning? Two, Jesus encourages us to stop doubting and believe. Doubt is normal, but by continuing together with other Christians, by reading God's word regularly, by praying to him, and by having conversations with people about your doubts, it is totally possible for every season of doubt to act as a sort of vaccine and help you emerge stronger than ever before. Three, we must recognize that Jesus is our Lord and our God. Belief in this is the central claim of Christianity, the whole reason this gospel is even written down. When Thomas realized this, he fell on his face in worship. So this morning, as we sing our final song, worship our Lord Jesus. Four, finally, we are recommended, we are reminded that we have believed without seeing the Lord Jesus, and because of that, we are blessed. Blessed to always have access to these exact words and teaching in the scripture. And I pray that you feel and recognize that this morning. Let me end in prayer. Lord Jesus, you rose from the dead. We thank you that you appear to Thomas and that this story has been written and recorded for all time, that we may come to believe in you. Um, and I pray that wherever we are at in our lives, we will come to you with all of our doubts and with all of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.